after Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work which you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me, those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have, that everything you have given, excuse me, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no, lo no longer." But they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known 
in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. That's the prayer of Jesus Christ from his deathbed. Those were his last words that night before they went off, before he went off surely to be betrayed by Judas who had slipped away in the midst of the meal, actually been sent away by Jesus. Jesus said, go and do quickly what you must do. And this was the prayer that the disciples heard Jesus pray from his deathbed. You'll remember that from his deathbed he, he talked about many things. He talked about himself being the vine and we being the branches. He said, if you don't stay attached to me, you won't produce anything. In fact, a person apart from me can do nothing at all. So he taught that we're to remain, to abide, to live, to find our nourishment, our reality in a relationship with himself. He taught that if we do that, we will do what he did. And he gave an example by washing the disciples' feet. So if we stay attached to Jesus, we will be a people who are naturally inclined to serve one another. And to do the tasks that are humble. To clean feet. Rather than to discuss who will be greatest in the kingdom, our propensity will be to serve and let God work out all the rest about greatness and that sort of stuff. We learned that from his deathbed he talked about obedience, that we would be a people who were obedient and therefore loving, and who would love and therefore be led to obedience, and that when love and obedience mesh together, there would be the presence, the presence of God himself, the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Father and the Son and the person of the Holy Spirit would be with us when this love and this obedience began to work hand in glove. Not, not a obedience of rules and regulations. Not a checking off of a list. But an obedience that flowed out of years of, of disciplined love. And growth in truth. And now we come to his, his last words which are a prayer. And he begins it by saying glorify your son in this hour. And he makes an aside comment about himself. He says to his father in prayer, you've given me the authority to give eternal life. And this is eternal life, to know the only true God and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. This is it. This is the only true life. He doesn't say that it's adhering to a religion. He doesn't say that it's signing up for a, for a certain creed or a certain set of beliefs. He says that it's a knowledge, an intimate, loving knowledge. That Dr. Gady pointed out at the beginning of the year that when the Bible uses that word no, it's the same word as is used for sexual intercourse. It's an intimate word. It's not just saying that you'll know about it and you'll ascribe to six different points of description about God. It's saying that you will know Him. You will be a part of His life. You will share in a unity with Him. And you'll know Him as a, fa as a husband knows a wife and a wife knows a husband. It will be so intimate that in fact the giving of a husband and wife to each other is merely a symbol of knowing Christ, a shadow of knowing God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But then he says something very odd, I think. He says, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. 
wait a minute. Put the brakes on. He hadn't died for our sins yet. Listen, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. I've been taught all my life the work he came to do was to die for our sins. And here he is. It must have gotten it out of order. It must have been a mistake. The only mistake Jesus made. He told the Father, I've completed the work, but he hadn't done it yet. He hadn't gotten on the cross. He hadn't died for our sins. He hadn't said, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hadn't said it is finished. He hadn't said, into your hands I commend my spirit. He hadn't died for us. And yet he says, Father, I've completed the work that you gave me to do. What in the world was the work that he's referring to? He said, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me, and they've accepted your teaching, and they've accepted your teacher, me, Jesus Christ. He said, I've revealed you, Father, to the ones you gave me out of the world. That was part of his work, revealing of the Father. When we come to Jesus the Son, he takes us by the hand to his Father and reveals the Father to us. Many of the people I know in, 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 over the years in my life who've come to Christ seem to know very little of the Father. And I don't understand it because Jesus always takes people by the hand to the Father. He says, I go to the Father's house to prepare a room for you. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He says here that his work is complete and that he'd revealed himself, he'd revealed the Father to the ones whom God had given him. But that's not all of his work that he'd completed. Revealing and then them accepting. Remember way back in chapter 1 it said he came into the world and the world received him not. But to those who did receive him, to those who accepted him, he gave those the power to become sons and daughters of God. And here he says these are some of them. I've revealed you to them and they've accepted it. But then he says something very interesting. He says I'm praying for them and Father I'm praying that you'll protect them. He prays two things, that they'll be protected and that they'll be sanctified. He says, I, but his, his protection is a very certain type of protection. It's not protection from death. It's not protection from cancer. It's not protection from persecution. It's protection from disunity. It's protection from being torn apart from one another. It's protection from living blandly next to one another, but not interrelated with one another. Because he goes on to say, Father, I pray that you will protect them in order that, for the purpose of. This is the reason I want you to protect them. He says, I pray that you may protect them so that they may be one as we are one. Then the world will know that you've sent me, he says later in his prayer. He's praying for protection that the disciples would stay unified with one another. He seems to think this is a pretty big deal. Our interpreter, Katie Voice, did a play called Storm Readings here in Santa Barbara with her husband and with another actor. And the central actor in it was physically very challenged. He had a disease that, that makes his limbs fly and that he cannot control them. And it's a beautiful piece of art because he actually plays this part and he actually has the disease. This is not an actor only. 
acting as though he has this, this disability, this challenge. It is a person who has had it, who has lived it. And in the play, Katie and her husband are often the thoughts of the, of the central actor who suffers from this disability, who's faced with this challenge, this physical challenge in life. And I went and saw the play. And it's very moving because he has it so severely that it forces the audience to deal with a severe disability. With one that at times makes everybody in the audience uncomfortable because he has a very difficult time speaking. And sometimes he would speak and the audience had to try to decipher it. Other times he would speak and Katie or her husband would, would say the words that he was trying to say that the audience couldn't understand. But most of the time they made you wrestle with it. We look at it and first there's pity. That's what I experienced. There's discomfort and there's pity. And then as the play unfolds, something beautiful happens. You begin to see the human being within this body. Instead of seeing only the body whose arms are flying and legs at times would fly, one leg would go up in a spasm this high. Not a, fal not a false thing, not, a, not an, an act. That was how his body worked all the time. And at first you were pivoted on how his body was responding or not responding. And then you began to see the person inside. And then your pity or your, your, your sadness or your discomfort took on a new angle. And you began to think, what must it be like for this, for this wonderful human being made in the image of God to have a body that does not serve him as well as most other people's bodies serve them? What must it be like for him to try to get the message out through this body that's not responding to the messages in an accurate way? How frustrating must it be? All that love pent up in there and people pivoted on the outward and the disunified work of his body. It's no wonder that Paul said we're the body of Christ. We're meant to take the beauty of the mind of Jesus and it's meant to flesh itself out perfectly in us. But as I look at the body of Christ, many times it looks quite challenged. Quite disabled, to be frank. And the more that the arm and the hand and the eye and the ear and the leg can operate in a unity with the rest of the body, the more we can proclaim the message of Christ fully and freely. Now, in this wonderful play, I also saw the beauty of how someone with this disability, with this challenge in life, can become a walking parable, can become a, a parable of the love of Christ, even with and even through and even because of the disability. But Jesus is saying to us in this passage, he wants the body, his body, to be unified. In fact, he says, Father, I want you to protect them. He doesn't even say from sin. Although I think theologically we can say it's sin that disunifies us from God and from one another. He says, protect them from anything that will keep them from loving you, Father, and loving one another. Then he says this, I'm not praying for them alone. I'm praying for all those who will believe in the message through them. That's you sitting in your chair at Westmont College 
on Monday, whatever the date is today, at 9.51 or so. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, prayed for you. He said, I'm going to pray not just for these 12. I'm going to pray for all the people who will believe in me through them. That's you. And you know what his prayer for you was? He literally prayed for you out loud. He said this. I pray that those folks at Westmont, those students, those faculty, those staff members, that chaplain, I pray that they may be one. O-N-E. That they may be one as we are one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, the call for Christian unity comes out of the the very person of God. The very person of God lives in community. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in some mysterious way forming the one God, live in perfect unity, and and God says, that's what I want to duplicate on this little planet over in this little corner of the solar system. I I want a group of people of all colors, of all ages, of all different backgrounds, I want them to be so one that when people see them living out their lives, they'll say, that must be what God is like. I get it. That must be the kind of God who sent Jesus. It's a fascinating thing because Jesus, in in this passage, gives his idea of evangelism. He says, I pray for them that they might be one, that they might live in complete unity so that the world will know that you have sent me. Now, the irony is I worked for 11 years as a full-time evangelist in the the mission of Young Life. That was my role, was to lead people to Christ, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelieving high school students, college students, and junior high school students. And I did that actually for 13 years. I was an evangelist. I proclaimed the good news. And I've been a part of a number of evangelical and evangelistic organizations. But most of them have a program quite different from Jesus' program. Jesus' program for evangelism was that people who already loved him would live in complete unity and that it would be such a marvelous sight that people would come from all the ends of the earth to find out how we do it. What's the source? That's why in the first century when they saw followers of Jesus, they said, see how they love one another. I haven't heard that out on the streets of Santa Barbara lately. I haven't heard that the world is saying about us, oh, see how they love one another. Let's figure this one out. Let's find out how they do it. The greatest program for evangelism would be if believers in Jesus Christ would stay unified with God and stay unified with one another and live in a harmony that would remind people of what God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit experience, always have, and always will. Then he closes by saying, Father, I'll continue to make you known to them. That's us. By extension, he was talking about the twelve and the other followers there. He says, I not only have made you known to them, I will continue to make you known to them. And then there's a fascinating verse which I'd never noticed until studying this passage today. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. In order that the love you, Father, have for me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
That's what I'm praying will be in them. Now, think about that for a minute. Jesus wants the love that God experiences for himself, for Jesus, to be in you, in your heart. And he wants his love for Jesus to be in Byron's heart. And he wants Byron to experience it. He wants Scott to experience it. He wants Dr. Vandermeer to experience it. He wants me to experience it. He wants Timmy to experience it. He wants you to experience the very love which the Father has for Jesus. He wants that to be like a nuclear explosion in your heart so that it sheds itself out, spreads all over the world, pours out of every pore in your body, pours out of your eyes, pours out in your actions, pours out in your intentions. But if you're like me, I'm a broken specimen of his love. And so his love has to be content to come out in my challenges, my disabilities. But it's very clear that we're meant to be an expression of God's love for Jesus. We're meant to experience it, and it's meant to come out from within us. So that was Jesus' prayer, that you might be one. The very lowest common denominator for becoming one is just to quit being mad at the person you're mad at. You know, there's somebody, probably, right now, you're mad at. Now you think, oh no, he's meddling. It was a good sermon right up till now. Some of you are mad at your mom. Some of you are mad at your dad. Some of you are mad at your roommate. Some of you are mad at your professor. Some of you professors are mad at each other. Some of you are mad at your students. Some of you are frustrated with this, frustrated with that person. The very lowest common denominator for being in unity is just to be reconciled. I mean, that's not the ultimate goal. That's just the baseline. It's so baseline that Jesus says, if you're going to chapel and you remember that you've got something against your professor, don't even take the ticket at the door. Go up and make it right with your professor. That will be your worship that day. You won't get chapel credit, though. Maybe I ought to start giving it for that. Reconciliation is the baseline. That's the starting blocks for learning to live in unity. Forgiveness. It's the first baby step in becoming unified. If we can't forgive one another, how can we love one another? And love is the ultimate goal. We'll forgive you for that. It's okay. Love is the ultimate goal. Love for one another, love for God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I get frustrated with this message because I'm so convinced after 30 years of following Christ that this is the most important message for the evangelism of the entire world. And it starts, you don't believe it, but it starts with you sitting in your seat right there. If you can't stay reconciled with your roommate, how can you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? What, do you ha what good news do you have to offer? More disunity? Let's pray. Father, you gave this message to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We give you great praise for its simplicity.
But Father, we know that no systems will unify us. No programs will unify us. Not even our creeds, as important as they are to keep our mind focused on an accurate view of you, not even our creeds have unified us. But we know, Father, that your Son, through the Holy Spirit, can unify us. If we cooperate with the sanctifying power of his truth, if we align our lives with the the great calling that he's given us, if we align our heart with his heart, if we turn away from all that disturbs him and turn toward all that invigorates him and causes him joy, if we stay attached to him. So we pray, Father, that we might stay attached to Jesus Christ, that we might serve one another, that we might obey your teachings in order to love better, and that we might love better in order to obey your teachings, and that we might experience the Holy Spirit in our lives, flowing out through us, knitting us together as one body, perfectly obeying the signal sent from you, our head. Now, Father, I call a blessing upon this group of people, the blessing of you, O Father, the blessing of your Son, and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And we listen now as Vox Lumina gives us the benediction. That if we would obey your Son's teachings, that you and he through the Holy Spirit would abide within us, would make your dwelling place within us. And you've taught us through the Apostle Paul and led us as a college to adopt as our motto the truth that Christ is preeminent in all things and that we have chosen by an act of our thoughtful will to proclaim him and to place our lives under his preeminence, saying we hold Christ preeminent in all things. And so, Father, we ask that we might know, believe, and through the grace of your Holy Spirit, experience the dwelling of yourself, your Son, through the Holy Spirit in the very rooms of our life, in the very center of our heart. We give you praise for this promise, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.